Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Louisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah. from Karen, and with me today is poet, playwright, and actor Peter Bland. Hello, Peter. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Peter is the author of 20 collections of poetry, which have been praised for their quirky obliqueness of viewpoint. It's one of my favorites from the Oxford Companion, as you might have been able to tell, from the Oxford Companion to New Zealand literature. Their aphoristic, self-mocking wit, their splendid use of the surreal, the wry humor, the mastery of the vernacular. I actually think, Peter, that maybe even better than these descriptions would be to share a few of your titles, which rather obviate the need for descriptions, because I just love your titles. So, apart from the memoir in 2004, which is called, Sorry, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, (laughs) there are others that I really enjoy, Domestic Interiors, The Man with the Carpet Bag, The Crusoe Factor, and maybe my favorite, A Potential Poem for More Than Passing Strangers. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Peter has just published the the, um, incident, which luckily brought us here today, is that Peter has just published a new book of poems for children called The Happy Garden. This is your fourth volume of poems for children, is it? Yes. So, it's something you enjoy doing. Absolutely. Love it. Yeah. And what is it about writing for children that you enjoy? I first started writing for children way back in the late 50s when I worked for school uh, for the school journal. And uh, my kids liked me to read a poem, to write a poem and, or read a poem to them at bedtime. This is before television, of course, and things like that. So I, I started uh, writing them specifically to read to my own, uh, my own children. And then I realized how much I enjoyed sort of the, the, the whole performance aspect of it, you know, lifting the poem off the page. And, and, I, and I loved the kind of imagination that was needed for a children's poem and the kind of energy. It's a different energy for a children's poem than for a inverted commas, grown-up poem. Yeah, different energy altogether. It comes so quickly. Uh, with no, there's no warning. In, in an adult poem, there's always a lot of contemplation and a lot of leading up to it and thinking about it. And uh, sometimes it comes, uh, the few lines come, but uh, in a children's poem, it just comes, bolts out the blue. You know, it's like running into the playground. I'm here, I'm here. Yeah. No warning, it just comes, yeah. And tied to that also the curiosity, possibly, the aspect that children are so much more curious than grown-ups, unfortunately. So there's that um, immediate fascination with, um, with certain aspects that you can bring out in the poem. Yeah, absolutely. It is so physical. The physicality uh, of a children's poem is, is very interesting, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's like playtime. Yeah. Yeah, and um, in that sense, also in the playful sense, it reminds me of, um, of course, of surrealism, which is of all of the various um, movements, one of the more playful. And you have it has been noted a lot. It's an adjective which is used a lot for your not only your children's poetry but also your adult poetry. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that is because uh, in the children's poem there are no barriers. You know, mermaids and unicorns can exist alongside mum and dad with no problem at all. You know, it's almost as though innately children realise that at the very core of things, everything is related to everything else. Uh, yeah, that's so true. That's really well said. And I thought you might read us um, one of the poems from the book, shall we? Fine. This poem is called 
the stone owl. The stone owl waited on the edge of a stream. Ten million years he slept his owl dream. He waited through rain and fire and snow for the seasons to shape the owl in his soul. Then a small child came to play in the stream and reached for the stone to throw. But his feel warmed the stone owl awake and the small child cried, There's an owl in this stone. He's alive. He's alive. Now the stone owl stands looking out at the moon from the high attic window of the small child's room. He has worn away eyes and a chipped away beak and heavy humped wings and sharp flinty feet. And he flies in his dreams beyond any known bird to a time long ago when stones ruled the world. He flies over oceans that have dried up and gone, over deserts where whales once played in the sun. He flies till he drops one more stone by a lake waiting for someone to wish him awake. Oh, that's so, thank you so much. I just love that poem. I love the way it's got that touch of the supernatural and yet in a totally natural way. It's, it's bringing it right out there as something that we can all enjoy and not something to be afraid of. Thanks. And yet there is still a, a real um, a cadence of, a, of a something very important. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. What I was noticing about the poems in the book is that um, the language is very rich, always very rich. I would call it a rich language. But sometimes it's rich for texture and sometimes it's rich for um, the music of it. But it's never a complicated rich. It's never, which is why the poems are so accessible. Right. It's true in a way, instead of seeing them as children, poems for children or poems for adults, it's more about how accessible, how easily accessible a poem is, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think some of the poems that I, I call children's poems, um, I write on the, on the edge, they appeal to grown-ups as well as to children. Um, I mean, they appeal to the child in, all, in, in us, you know. So the uh, grown-ups will, res- will respond to what, I, what we call a, a child's poem. Uh, because um, it sort of uh, it sort of hits a kind of um, area of imagination that they're not used to. Yeah, or that they've stopped being used to, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah uh, in forth, growing up. Yeah, forty or fifty years of uh, adult struggle has kind of uh, <laughs> has killed a child in them. Uh, and uh, you have to have the child still alive in you to be able to to deal with that area. I think that uh, yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, it's so true. And how um, that that instinct for a rhyme, uh, well, rhyme, not necessarily rhyme, that rhythmic um, poetic language can stay with you on on the most simple of topics is something reassuring and brings joy whether or not it's something that's actually providing a new insight it can be i'm thinking of when my mother my mother had alzheimer's disease and when she was in the later stages of her illness we used to read um robert louis stevenson together child's garden of verses right and um you know she would recite the poems. you could still remember it from her childhood that's what fabulous and it just brought such joy to both of us yeah that's terrific yeah it just shows you how deep it goes really yeah and stevenson being another of those authors who had that voice which sounds to a child like they are hearing themselves. They're not hearing yeah. someone speaking down to them. Exactly. That's the thing. You've got to be there with the right standing ne- right next to the to the 
to the children. Yeah, in the memoir, you talk about um, the early poems like Horatio um, holding the bridge. Didn't Horatio held the bridge? He did hold the and, bridge. Yeah, yeah, then there was the boy who stood on the burning deck. Yeah, and <laughs> which wrote, was, wrote to Mandalay. It was, it was all very uh, empire materialistic stuff that we, yeah. were, we were taught uh, in schools in the UK at that and, time. And very um, didactic, wasn't it? It was supposed to teach you how to um, become a hero and yeah, how to act right. heroically that's according right. to the, the tenets of the British Empire yeah, or something. Very yeah, very much so. So why did you read us one that shows us how not to act according to the tenets okay. of the British Empire? <laughs> this poem is called, it's from the children's book again, it's called Our Garden is a Jungle. Our garden is a jungle full of slimy beasts who try to eat dad's butter beans and pounce on lazy bees. So look out for the elephant. A sort of giant snail, except he's got a long grey trunk and is bigger than a whale. And ignore the hippopotto slug as he tries to remember his name while always getting stuck in the mud and wondering who to blame. And beware the speedy rhinopede on a thousand busy feet, none of which know which way to go, so always end up in a heap. Most of all, learn to fear the tiger toad who eats anything that moves, especially stray fingers and occasionally bare toes. Never walk the lawn on naked feet and keep your eyes on the move for elephants and rhinopedes and the dreaded tiger toads. <laughs> I, I had a number of moments there where I had to bite my lip to stop from laughing, but I didn't want to intrude on people's pleasure in listening to this poem. Um, yeah, so, it, again, you know, just I just love that voice. It's, that is a child, if a child could have that command of vocabulary and, and experience, because they just can't have the years of experience, they're just younger. But that is immediately... Their voice, isn't it? You're yeah. speaking to them in their voice. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think that that um, ability to take on different voices, because we'll move on in a second to your other poetry, the one that we don't know if we should call adult or grown <laughs> up or, or general, um, do you think that that... You had a talent for that, which is what also led you into the world of playwriting and acting? Or do you think that it was also your experience in... Because the playwriting started fairly early. In that, which then moved over into your poems and... Uh, I think that uh, once I started working in theatre as an actor, I quickly became aware of um, the relationship between the voice and poetry and how important it was to, you know, to uh, sort of... Uh, deal with deal with uh, the voice in poetry, and I, I always like reading because it lifts it off the page. It lifts the poem off the page and gives it an extra dimension. Uh, so I, I I like the performance aspect of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people forget. I make this point a lot, so if people have listened to me other times, they might be bored by this. But how before the days of television and radio, people did gather around in the evenings, and one person played the spinet, you'd have a song, or someone would sing, and then people would read out loud poetry right. or right. stories to each That's other. Right. And um, and it was not considered something that people did silently. The idea of silent reading actually appeared at a certain point in human history and was a surprise to many people. Right. And uh, I, I still remember very fondly, you know, my, my kids gathering around to listen to a poem, to listen to a new poem. It was always, it was always an event. And it had an amazing effect, I, I realized, uh, on my grown-up, inverted commas, work. Because... Um, it, uh, the, 
the child, writing children's poetry opened up the imagination for, for me. And then I started to see my children's drawings and their play games and uh, uh, their world, their imaginative world. And um, this was at a time when New Zealand in the 50s was very repressive and very sort of subdued and... Uh, grey. Gray, oh, grey, yeah, <laughs> oh, very grey. <laughs> and so um, it came as a real um, insight for me to uh, see my children's imaginations brought me alive and I was able to use something of their view of the world in my inverted commas grown-up poetry. It, it gave it an extra dimension, which at that time I was writing very angry social realist poems about uh, about the sort of uh, terrible repression of New Zealand life at that time. And through my children, I was able to expand into a, a, a different kind of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it's really down to them that I was able to sort of pick that, pick that up and use it. Yeah, the sort of why should children have all the fun? Yeah. And you so you're not going to bring it into your grown-up poems in exactly the same way, but it's still it's fun still, it's in still that the sense same of taking yeah. a risk. Yeah, and, it comes from the same place too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so let's move on to that. So I've got two books here, which I think are your two most recent um, books of poetry, which are A Fugitive Presence and Voodoo. I think I did. I yep. used Voodoo. <laughs> Somewhere I had it. Um, and um, so that's from 2016, 2018. And I would like to shamelessly ask you to start us off here in our move to the adult poems by reading a particular poem rather than letting you choose because it's one which particularly spoke to me and I think it will speak to many and it's called Harbors. Yeah, it's a sort of prose poem. Yes. Harbors. Whenever we dream of harbors, they're waiting for us to arrive. And the anticipation of sailing into them is timeless and intense. Harbors are a promise waiting to be fulfilled. My first harbor was long ago. I was born in one. It was crammed with old trawlers and barrels of fish, with whistles blowing, funnels belching black smoke, and girls with sharp knives in salty dresses and clogs. There was always a sludge of ice and oil underfoot, gulls shrieking, nets being hauled in, damp, smelly stalls selling crabs, winkles and shrimps. When I left that harbour, it must have sailed away, because when I returned years later, it was empty, drab, a mere ghost of its former self. Since then, I've seen many harbours come and go. I've seen Pacific harbours full of mangroves and hollowed-out canoes, Mediterranean harbours lying like sleeping cats in the sun, lonely northern harbours marooned in half-frozen fjords. There are Henry Miller harbours, Conrad harbours, D.H. Lawrence harbours, Memento Mori, and Homeric harbours with sunsets the colour of blood. Everyone has a small harbour moored in their hearts, perhaps one with a run-down cafe and a few forgotten boats bobbing close to shore. The sort of harbour you can only put together for yourself, where day after day you can sit and wonder how it got there, knowing you'll never want to leave. Uh. That is so lovely. I just that um, the description of the harbors it um, reminds me somewhat of another favorite poem of mine, and I know he's a friend of yours, Bob Orr's poem about rivers. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, rivers, harbors, there's something. I think that this is, in, in we are in New Zealand. I think this also speaks to everyone. These, yes, um, Bob's great at, at, yeah. at, at that. Yeah, well, you are great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll shout out to Bob. But um, I think there's something in particular about, the, the. I've been fascinated by harbors my whole life. I grew up in um, near San Diego, another great harbor of the world. But it's that, um, it, it's that point of stepping off. It's you're at the edge. It's just one step, and that will take you onto one of these ships that will take you out to anywhere in the world. Right. It's you're always living right there. It's um, unlike right. the the people in the in the, in a place far from the ocean that watch the trains go by and have to wish one day they might get on one of those trains. Yeah, <laughs> but you've got it right there, one step away. Um, the, so my first harbor. So I know this because I read that your wonderful memoir. But for those who don't, so that would be Scarborough, where you were born. Yes. And North how, Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah. So, that just it'd be wonderful to just have a few minutes so you can tell us about how you got from there in North Yorkshire <laughs> to here. Um, I remember uh, I was born in uh, uh, Scarborough and spent the first five or six years of my life there. So, I remember it um, uh, in pre-war years, really, as a work, really working harbour, you know, with uh, fishing boats and herring girls and... Uh, uh, that's how I remember it now. It's not like that at all. It's uh, sort of a very touristy sort of little harbour. Um, and I, uh, uh, during the war, I, I was moved around a lot because of the bombing. So, and my mother was told, was, um, worked in a munitions factory. She was uh, told to work in a munitions factory in the Midlands. So we moved away from Scarborough and, uh, when I was about nine to uh, a munitions factory in the English Midlands where I grew up. And, but, but I lost my parents and my family during the war or just after the war. So I was orphaned by the time I was 15 or 14, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and you had already left school and started to work. Yeah, I left school and started. I was working in the local boot factory. Yeah, and uh, uh, that, that, that um, it's funny, you know. It had never occurred to me to, that I could be an actor or a poet or anything like that. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't see it. It didn't seem possible at that time. I mean, your view of things is limited, especially if you've got no family to back you up or people to take an interest in you. And certainly it was tied, uh, you know, in the a few hundred years before that, any creative activity was tied to having the patron who would support you. And then in more modern times, the education, which would get you into where there were jobs and grants that should allow you the time to write. But certainly exactly. a 14-year-old boy working in a boot factory would not have seen that and with no family support. No. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's amazing, really, that I uh, um, that I managed to get here eventually. I, it, um, pure pure accident. Um, I was taken in by the local vicar who looked after me until until I did my two years national service in the army. When I came out of the army, I opened the newspaper and and saw you can come to Canada or you can come to Australia or you can come to New Zealand for ten pounds as a as a as an emigrant. And I thought, yeah, I need a completely new start. I need I need to get away and make a completely new start somewhere. And I chose chose New Zealand because it was an island. Uh, like England, like the UK. And uh, I thought 
oh, that sounds really great. There'll be there'll be palm trees and hula girls, and uh, it'll be it'll be magical. The sun will always be yeah, shining. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can't and uh, you know, can't wait to get and be part of that sort of South Pacific, uh, sexy, colourful world. Yeah, it yeah. didn't turn out like that in '53. <laughs> <laughs> so you, they put you on a ship. They did, and it took how was it like a six week trip or something? Yeah, six week yeah. trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fifteen hundred. Uh, I was crammed on a tiny little ship of about eleven thousand tons. Yeah. And you said um, the men on one side, and the, in the memoir it says the women oh, un- we unmarried kept, yeah. men on one side. Yeah. We, were, we were kept apart as much as possible. Yeah. Breeding wasn't to start until we arrived in the colonies, and <laughs> uh, then uh, then with the locals, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you were being saved up. Yeah, that's yeah, we, right. We were all being saved up. Yeah, for you, were, you were being brought in for that <laughs> yeah, purpose. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But you did talk about how the closer you got to land, the more there was sort of a sexual charge in the air, almost yeah. as if the New Zealand was the lover waiting for you. Oh, well, or, that's right. Yeah. And everybody felt it, I think. I yeah. think, you know, yeah. 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 And then you sailed into Wellington Harbor, speaking of harbors, and you saw, um, how is it described? It's... Um, in the book is the um, uh, this, the elemental loneliness of the place that you could, first you're coming along the land getting close to Wellington and wondering where are all the towns <laughs> yeah where, where are all the people where, where are all the people yeah, yeah. and then you then the boat turns and you, what do you say what does a boat do jives or yeah. whatever it does comes into Wellington comes Harbor comes into Wellington Harbor and suddenly there it is it's, little yeah. houses clinging to the hill yeah, hillside yeah, yeah. and a very damp sort of look to the whole thing there's a, a wonderful line. You see, man's pres- lives were huddled together in their circle of damp hills. Man's presence was tissue thin. A whole new psychology was going to be needed to cope with this landscape before we could resume to call it home. Yeah. And it was. It's interesting. I have written here before we could resume to call it home, but perhaps it was presume. Yeah, presume. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of it could be both because yeah. you had a home before. Now you need to resume having a home, but it's going to be this new yes, home. That's right. Yeah. 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 So it did. It was quite a culture shock. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah tremendous. Uh, yeah. It, uh, I don't know why. I, I've never been able to realize uh, account for the fact that, that why New Zealand was so repressive and so. Uh, so sort of uh, suppressed just for those few years in the 50s. I mean, you can read... um you read all the writers noticed it. You know, Frank Sargeson talked about it. Is where is the camaraderie, camaraderie gone that we had in the sort of thirties? And um, I can remember one of the painters uh, sort of say, saying, "Oh, all, all my painter friends are either drunk or they're te- being taken away in a little green van." It was owls do cry time. You know, it was, yeah. there was a lot of uh, a lot of breakdowns and a lot of um, lost souls. Really, yeah. Again- we, we were all, we were all supposed to live in a state house and breed. Yeah. That was a basic thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Or or a little um, a place in the country, the quarter acre in the country with the white yeah. picket fence around it. Yeah. Because, you know, the French poet Blaise Sandrard, did you know he came to New Zealand? He was shipped out on, he was a merchant in the Merchant Marines. And oh. he came to New Zealand. And he wrote about... Um, these, what was so strange to him as a Frenchman was that the people living in the country who should have been earthy, um, you know, as the French peasant type um, character, um, were instead um, middle class, clung to their middle classness right. in their little house with the picket fence around it, guarding their perfect middle classness. Right. And I had, I actually don't know if classness is a, is a noun, but anyway, <laughs> their middle classness. Um, I had read a lot about how um, one of these that you're saying, you know, why was New Zealand so 
repressed was this fact that as compared to Australia, for instance, the people that immigrated to New Zealand were lower middle class, were people who had reached the middle class in England but had a tenuous hold on it and thought that they could get a stronger hold on it in New Zealand. And so therefore that reinforced. And one of the worst things we know about middle classness is the looking at what your neighbors are doing, worrying about your reputation. And conformity. And conformity. Exactly. That's exactly the word. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the, the conformity was was pretty pretty dense, you know. I mean, the shops closed early. The, uh, the old country closed down the weekends. You couldn't get the pubs. Uh, the six o'clock closing kept going on till about sixty seven or sixty eight. I think uh, things did start to change in the middle to late sixties. And I think largely because you started to get a new generation that had travelled more. You know, that knew that, that knew uh, that. that um, uh, knew about uh, life in other places and, and brought that back to New Zealand. And I think that's something that uh, it, uh, in literature isn't taken into account enough. The, the the immigrant imagination is a constant thing that comes in all the time. It drifts in. It drifts in and uh, it helps to augment what's already there. Yeah, so, so you as one of the immigrants, um, you were saying, I didn't dream I could write poetry, but you actually, in the book, you talk about having thrown some of your poetry overboard your, when you arrived. So you had been writing. And, I tried, you know. Yeah, I was writing yeah. sing-song stuff, you know. The yeah. devil's on a donkey, can't you hear him ride? Yeah. Listen to the wind and the moaning of the tide, all that sort of crap. Yeah, and, well, uh, <laughs> but it's the it's that apprenticeship. You're, yeah. What you were doing is too closely copying what you had been yeah, taught in school. Exactly, but, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. So I threw all that overboard along with my ration book. Because we were still rationed in the UK until 1954. So, That's uh, 10 years after the war ended, nearly. Yeah. I mean, absurd. Absolutely absurd. It's such a wonderful metaphor, this throwing overboard poems in a ration book yeah. and arriving in a new land. <laughs> yeah. Where you proceeded to shock people. Um, what was the story about the nose? that had a four-letter word and you were not able to get a grant. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I read a poem called The Nose, yeah. And it, I think it's the first time that uh, the, the, the four-letter word had been used and uh, they, they wouldn't print it, they, they, and so uh, I had to change it to something else. Otherwise, otherwise, the, the the book, which was an anthology, everybody else would have been lost their chance to have a poem in the anthology. So, but later on, I put the word back in again because it was pure reportage. I was simply reporting what somebody had said to me in the street. You know, yeah. Yeah. So even if it hadn't been, yeah, <laughs> there would exactly. be a point for being exactly. allowed to. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so you stayed in Wellington yeah. um, for many years and were a part of a of a very important poetry scene, um, which was already had taken a different stance than an older poetic. Exactly. Um, yeah, and people like Jim Baxter, Louis Johnson, um, and, and myself, we sort of tried to turn poetry. We tried to get poetry to uh, come to grips with the sort of modern urban life, you know, suburban life. And uh, prior to that, it had all been myths of origin and uh, historical stuff. Well, a lot of it had. Uh, but we, we wanted to sort of um, get to grips with life as it was from day to day, you know, fa- in families and children. I mean, I think Fleur Alcock and myself were the first p- people to write a poem about children, and a, a grown-up poem about children yeah. and about family life. wasn't done before that. 
Yeah, it was considered too plebeian a, a topic yeah, or yeah, something. That's yeah, right. yeah. So, and again, back comes the story of the voice and the vernacular and speaking in a language which people actually use in day to day life. And I love the, the I love the uh, vernacular in New Zealand. I just loved it. There was no no class, no echoes of empire. Uh, there was a kind of dry dry sort of uh, matter of factness about it. It was a little bit grim actually, and put you in your place. But it was full of all sorts of possibilities, uh, you know, which were quite, thr- quite thrilling. It was very democratic. Yeah. I So, speak, that's a really good, um, uh, reminds me of something that I did want to say, which is I've been hearing about your Facebook um, channel now, where Peter reads poetry. Tell us about that. Um, my daughter, I'm useless on, on anything to do with computers and Facebooks, but my daughter said to me, uh, I, I really like it, Dad, when um, I overhear you uh, uh, reading poems to yourself. And I think you should put, put these poems up on Facebook, and I'll do it for you. And she did. So I started reading poems on Facebook, which I really love doing because it's so intimate and uh, it's like speaking to one person. And uh, it's, it's had a nice response. I get a feedback, which is uh, very, 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 very nice, you know. I mean, it's a lonely life <laughs> being a poet, so to get some kind of summer feedback... Uh, is great, yeah. uh, you know, and that the one particular from uh, Anita Arloff, really, I love that one. She said, "Yes, we we like it because we feel we're inside the poem with you." Yeah, that's you right. know, and I thought, yeah, God, I'm so pleased you you feel like that because exactly what I'm trying to do. Yeah, because you have that ability. You're looking at the person sitting in front of you who've tuned in now because they say, oh, "I'd like to hear Peter read a poem to me." As I would right now, and I think our listeners too. Okay, here it is. Living close to the border. For years we've put off getting here. In the end there was nowhere else to go. Rumours from across the border suggest we were always passing through. But the light is lovelier than it's ever been. Trees and flowers glow from within. Ponds reflect old childhood memories. Wolves and tigers lick our hands. Why does it take a lifetime to get here? Where are we going? How long can we stay? Were we always in exile this side of the border? Why do we live on the verge of tears, yet laugh out loud so late in the day? This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and... Catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day.